Hello and welcome to the Empathy for Breakfast show. I am Mimi Nicklin and I am your host of a show that travels the world, talking to people from all corners of our planet about empathy, about our ability to connect and to understand each other and how that is changing our world. These conversations won't only unpack the amazing power of empathy in our societies and our businesses, but they will remind us that we are all far more alike than we are different. I believe that there has never been a better time to talk about empathy, to talk about our need to reconnect as people, as human beings. The more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. So let's get talking. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Empathy for Breakfast show. I am so excited to be going into this conversation today with somebody very special because she has become a friend of mine through the depths of COVID, and that is Rebecca Clark, who is the founder of Happy Marlow. And you've probably seen us on Instagram because we tend to talk quite a lot about all things empathy, children, resilience, happiness, and uh, have some fantastic conversations. So, Rebecca Clark, thank you so much for finding time and joining me. Mimi Nicklin, it is my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I feel like this has been such a long time coming. I know. We have had a few false starts with finding the right time and space to get together, but I'm really glad we're doing this now. Me too. And I always believe that everything happens for a reason. So today is probably the best possible day thinking about um, all things empathy and children and mindfulness and, and all of these wonderful things. So let's kick off by starting a little bit about empathy and then moving on into into your world and all the amazing things you're doing and discovering but what does empathy mean to you Rebecca let's kick off with that I mean this is something you and I have obviously spoken about a bit in the past but what it means to me is really getting in the trenches with others and making space to see things from other people's perspective that idea of walking in another person's shoes and really being connected or recognizing how connected we all are to one another. I think it was um, Brené Brown who says it's that feeling of being with other people, with being the optive word, like I'm with you, I'm alongside you, you're, you're not necessarily alone. And of course, that doesn't mean that we always say or do the right thing um, in any given moment to support people. But it is an acknowledgement of I'm here, and I'm, I'm ready, and I'm, I'm open to accept whatever you need, or wherever it is that you're coming from in this moment. I love that idea of sort of you're less alone, you're more connected. And you're right, Brené Brown is Brené Brown that says that. And she says it so beautifully about being alongside people, um, especially in these months, right, in these years, it seems, of our lives as, as COVID continues to create gaps in all kinds of areas. And of course, you're a mum. So you've, like me, been at home many times in these months um, <laughs> and tried to face this world from within, you know, four walls. Do you think we can teach empathy to our children? Interestingly, you and I, we spoke about this just a couple of weeks ago, and you were talking about the fact that children are born empathetic, and it is innate within us. But I do think, as with all things, you know, lived experience can have an impact on that for, for better or worse. So the way I see it, we can certainly support and encourage our children to be more empathetic, and we can role model this for them in how we behave with the children around us, 
and how we behave towards other adults. I mean, I think it's really interesting that schools are, have become a lot more proactive around children's emotional health, which is really encouraging because sometimes school, you know, it's a big part of growing up and it isn't always necessarily the safe space that it could or should be. Um, but as I said, many schools are developing mindfulness and other practices as part of their daily schedule. Um, and I was recently looking around a school for my little one and I was really pleased to see they had these kindness corners dotted around the place. Um, and so these were spots that children can go to if they're feeling down or lonely or left out. And it's known within the school's community that if you see a child there, then that is, you know, it's your job, it's your role to go and be with them and see how you can support them and be a friend to them. And that really like warmed my heart because there was nothing like that when I was was growing up. And so definitely it's 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 a part of nurturing the children in our lives, um, but they understand empathy and, and supporting them so that they can feel it and, and demonstrate it themselves. And just for all of our audience, you're in the UK. So the school that you're talking about was in, in London. And mm. Of course, London tends to lead the world in, in many areas. And, and I'm also thrilled to hear that, you know, you saw this in a school. Do you think schools should be doing more to have empathy in their curriculum? And, and have you seen that? Have you heard that discussion sort of in the rhetoric in the UK? Is this something that perhaps COVID has encouraged? Yeah, def- I mean, it's interesting. As part of my work with Happy Marlow, teachers and schools are one of our audiences. And I'm very fortunate in that my dear niece um, is a primary school teacher. So she's a great person to mine for information. Um, and she's been teaching teaching a few years now so a lot of her early career has been in this this crazy um, experience of, of the pandemic and um, what I'm hearing speaking to her and other teachers is that definitely there's a real focus on encouraging teachers to find different ways to incorporate it with within the lessons but also you know as part of the school's routine um, so I definitely think that it's it's shifting in the right direction again in the UK we're hearing more about yoga being a part of of the school schedule as it were but I do think it's I think there are some generational aspects to it as well like I said before when I was at school none of this stuff was really going on and you would talk about pastoral care but I don't think that it was front and center um, in the way that it is now and I think it's only going to become more important because of the impacts of this past 18 months and I think it's I've been encouraged to see lots of school leadership um, and teachers themselves really looking out for different tools and resources and ways they can support the children in their care. It's fantastic, isn't it? Fantastic to hear that it's changing and that there are places that are really leading the way and and really elevating that conversation. And you mentioned, of course, as the founder of Happy Marlow, you've been in touch with some schools, with some teachers. But why don't we talk a little bit about your story? Because it is just such a fantastic story. Tell us a little bit about Happy Marlow, why you're dedicating all those hours of the day to making this beautiful thing. And, and how you got to it. Well, Happy Marlow, as you, as you say, it's all about supporting six to 11-year-olds. And our mission is around empowering them um, with their resilience and really strengthening those emotional muscles so that they can are better equipped and feel they have real agency around their emotional well-being and can better navigate the inevitable ups and downs of growing up. Um, why is this my passion? I mean, like many children, I didn't have the easiest of starts. I was taken into a emergency foster care as a baby and subsequently adopted age three. And as a mixed race child brought up by a white family, this presented a number of challenges. I mean, 
being adopted presents many complex challenges. And then in my case, there was the transracial elements of top on top. And so kind of going back, I was born in the late 70s, growing up in the early 80s, there was much less support. I don't know if there was any, to be honest, uh, in terms of therapy or trauma counselling for myself and, and my parents, um, then perhaps I, I know that there is now, there's more that's done, which is which is good. So these experiences and these feelings um, growing up around abandonment and low self-esteem, confusion around my identity and feeling other naturally had a really big impact on me, which I spent much of my early adulthood unpicking and healing. And when I turned 40 a few years ago, I was really reflective on this and recognized that childhood is challenging for the majority of children. You know, the stories are different, the characters are different, but the result being that many young adults and adults are carrying around unresolved trauma, which they may or may not know about or might not be able to pinpoint. So I started to get really interested and curious about, well, if that is the case, how can we better support children during the process of growing? up from that exploration happy Marlowe was born oh it's such a beautiful story and thank you for sharing it with us so candidly and so openly I think it's you know as I've said to you so many times it's such an important piece of work and of course this area around adoption you've just shared some of your own adoption story let's talk a little bit about empathy within those families you know whether it was the 70s then or it's today there are challenges right of bringing um, different children into different families and working out how to create that path forward as one unit that didn't necessarily start in the same place did you experience much empathy within your family Um, do you think it's something that perhaps families that are going through that now or are looking at that journey can be aware of you know what is the role of understanding each other in creating those family units Well, I think there's two elements that spring to mind. There's what's going on at home in the family and there's what's going on outside of your family in the the broader community because we're all members of broader communities. And so I would say there is definitely empathy within my family, but I think it could also be very hard for my parents to understand, right, To, to grasp what it might be for me growing up in that way. There's often a lot of secrecy around adoption. There can often be a lot of shame around adoption. And I think particularly, you know, I can only speak to my experience, but for my parents, their kind of reaction to that was, well, let's just do our best and kind of brush things under the carpet. You know, I already mentioned there wasn't wasn't counselling or things going on as a matter of course, which there are today. And so it was more an approach of, you know, let's just (laughs) keep our chins up and do the best that we can. And so my parents did do the best that they could around that. But it was it was it was still very hard for me. You know, there were there were lots of things that came up as a result. It's really interesting. I mean, it's it's a it's a big conversation, Mimi, and one which could could be a standalone one. But I'm I'm interested in the fact that there's a lot of discussion right now in the UK and the US amongst adult adoptees. There's a lot of anger. A lot of people feel that their voices have not been heard or recognised or acknowledged. And adoption is, by its nature, it's complex and painful for everyone concerned. There's no happy ending. Um, or here's a, you know adoption day because of the things that have gone before on every party's part. 
And then I mentioned the community piece because people people can be painful, you know, people can be inquisitive, they can make comments. And so that was where my real sense of other came from, being outside of the family, because I was very visibly other. Um, I know a lot of adopted adults now who basically didn't tell anyone that they were growing up, that they were adopted, and they could pretend that they weren't, whereas I didn't have that, I was going to say luxury, I don't know if that's right, but I didn't have that option. It was very clear. And so... What I would say, one of the things when I think around empathy and adoption now is I'd really encourage those who are outside of the adoption community to just be mindful, particularly around the language they use and some of the questions that they might ask, because they can sometimes be more than insensitive. And so you hear a lot of phrases like real children, real parents. Do you love them as much as your real children? Which can sound shocking, but that's a very commonly asked question. And of course, you know, little ears and young ears, you hear this and you don't, it takes root. You don't forget. It's another reinforcement. And so I would really encourage empathy and, you know, just just thinking about some of the things that you might say when you are speaking um, with adoptive children or other members of the adoption community. It's such a, a fascinating point. And so much of my work is around exactly what you were just saying, right? So listening and then choosing your language and how powerful language can be I I got really uncomfortable when you said you know do you love them as much as your real children or or do they feel like your real children I mean it's just such a horrendous sort of assumption um, or use of language uh, you know that really does it it does segregate versus what we're talking about in empathy which is bringing people together like you said at the beginning you know bringing people closer into that reality of course you're doing it happy Marlowe was born from much of this personal experience and wanting children to feel heard and to feel able to communicate. And as you said, to have real strong muscles, I think you said, or in terms of emotional muscles and resilience and, and mindfulness. Let's talk a bit about mindfulness because it is a bit of a, I don't know, media, right? <laughs> yeah, it's thrown around a lot, right? Um, and it's changed very quickly. And of course, the pandemic has, has fast tracked that. But given this conversation, given this conversation about, you know, giving children the strength to be able to overcome these things, giving them higher resilience, giving them a stronger use of those emotional skills that we all have, what do you think mindfulness is? And do children really need it? What is it? I mean, to me, mindfulness is about paying attention and being present. Being responsible for babies and young children is a great exercise in mindfulness because they are completely present. They are fully focused on what is happening in the here and now. As you said, it has become a buzzword. I think many people associate mindfulness with meditation, but I think that's just one expression. It's just really important that we make space for those moments to be quiet or be with our breath and to feel connected. That's the key word for me, that sense of connection. So for some that might be meditation, for others it might be swimming it might be just having a nice cuddle with your little one but finding the space for those moments of connection I believe can really create a sense of balance and when we feel balanced it helps keep to keep us grounded emotionally and when we're grounded emotionally we're better able to weather the inevitable ups and downs so that's what mindfulness means to me and it is important I think that we encourage those moments or create space for that with our children for our children and that might mean just being really present putting the phone down I say that to myself as much 
watches anything. And as you say, listening, really listening, paying attention and, and being curious for children, you know, creating those little moments of what are you seeing right now? What can you smell? What can you hear? Um, and just exploring with them and making it fun. I think mindfulness can sometimes feel like this heavy, serious thing that we're meant to do. And it's it's not. It's just about balance, connectedness and that sense of grounding. And it, there's an invitation for you to interpret that and create moments of that in whichever way you feel is best for you. I love that. And it's definitely something that we try to do in my home. I mean, my little girl is still very small and I think it can be extremely difficult to get them to focus on anything sort of under four years old. But tell me the app, as you mentioned, or not just the app, the platform, the Happy Marlowe platform you were talking at the beginning is for six to 11 year olds. What's it going to do, Rebecca? How how are parents and children going to use, engage with you know, take on Happy Marlow into their lives? So Happy Marlow is underpinned by three pillars. So three healing modalities, which are breath work, emotional freedom technique, and sound healing. They're all science backed and they're really effective. And what's great for children and for parents is that you can start to see the benefits really quickly. And so by using our app um, when it's launched or coming to one of our events um, or accessing our platform, you can go onto our website and experience some of these, what we call Marlowe moments. We're creating and curating these five to seven minutes. So bite-sized chunks, little opportunities to really create a sense of calm, build confidence. And the the lovely thing about these modalities is once you know, you don't have to do very much. It's easy to access. It's either listening to a beautiful sound bath, for example, just kind of having some moments of peace and quiet or with tapping. Once you know the points to tap, you can do them discreetly by yourself at any time. One of the children who's, who's part of our community was doing tapping before a major exam a few months ago. And, and, as a result of Happy Marlow, it's just like music to my ears. She's like, oh, I remembered I could do the tapping. Um, and it just really helped her with her nerves um, and going into that room and, and sitting that exam. And so that's what Happy Marlow wants to do is basically say, here is a toolkit that's going to help with all of the different things that might come up. And once you know how to kind of access them and use them and start to tap into them um, on a regular basis, the children themselves and their parents or caregivers or other adults in their lives are really going to see the benefit and just start to see children thrive emotionally which is all um, any of us want it is and what a gift you know what a gift that you can give your children if that's via you know via happy marlow or other areas in this space where we give our children these tools to be able to handle you know these types of pressures in fact i was on instagram earlier looking at um a mum who had recently done hypnobirthing which is of course lots of mindfulness and breathing and all these things and she was going in today long long after she's given birth for a completely separate medical issue in the hospital and was talking on her Instagram about how she had been using her breath work in an entirely different situation and she was talking about how grateful she was for the learning you know those couple of years ago and it just reminds me of what you're saying now which is that you're giving children skills that they can carry with them for you know for such a long time ahead and in the world that we're in today I mean, it's just so inconsistent. The whole world is inconsistent, right? That these are the type of skills, and you obviously talk about resilience, that we can carry with us and that our children can carry with us. And that if we're not there and they're in an exam or a school classroom or somebody else's house, they can can revert back to those skills. So that's why I say I feel like it's a gift. I think it's uh, something we can give our children that they can carry with them for a very long time to come. And let's hope that affects their adulthood as well, you know, and perhaps creates a more grounded, consistent group of adults far beyond us lot. But absolutely, tools for a lifetime and one of the you know things that I think 
about a lot is what kind of adults might these children become having these tools in their toolkit? And in turn, if they choose to become parents, how might it impact their parenting? And then we can start to really shift some of these cycles and really move the needle on generational trauma, which is what we're, we're all experiencing. And, it, you know, it's a very interesting concept as well, this, this last idea before we sort of start to close, but around generational trauma, because I was again reading something just recently about how our children will describe these years, these COVID years. If we assume, I mean, we've already had a year and a half, we assume there's another two to go. Three years is is a long time, right, for our world to have been disrupted. And how will our children carry the trauma or not of this time? How will it have changed their behavior or not in this time? So I think for Happy Marlow to be launching now and starting your work in these times, albeit difficult, yeah, I mean, it couldn't be a better time because the world is certainly in need of an intervention in many, many ways. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, of course, none of us would have wanted what has happened to have happened. But I think it's acknowledging that it has and the longer term impacts of all of this, particularly around our children, remain to be seen. And so Happy Marlowe, as you write, it's, it's one solution. It's going to take a lot of us. It's going to take lots of different people coming together and collaborating. But now is the time. And um, the thing that when I speak about Happy Marlowe to people, one of the main phrases that comes back to, oh, it's much needed. It's much needed. And it is. And I'm I'm really thrilled to, to be involved in this and, and, and doing this work. Absolutely. And it is indeed much, much needed. I always like to end with a question a little bit more about you, because of course, we talk about empathy and understanding each other. So just a little, a little insight into the life of Rebecca. If you could share breakfast with any one person, who would it be? Where would you go? And what would you be having? Well, I love this question, because when I love eating out, I love hospitality and socialising. Um, whenever I'm asked this question about who would I like to spend time with or meet, um, I always say Michelle Obama, because I absolutely love her. Um, and when I was thinking about this conversation yesterday, I thought, well, I'm going to cheekily invite someone else as well. So at my breakfast table, um, I would have Michelle Obama on one side and Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge on the other. These are two women I greatly admire and who are using their influence to support children. So Michelle has done and continues to do great work in the US around children's physical health and healthy lifestyles. The Duchess of Cambridge is making it her mission and legacy um, to support children in their early years and just announced last year the opening of the Centre for Early Years based out of Kensington um, Palace. So I would invite my guests to the Berners Tavern in London, which is one of my favourite dining rooms. It has a real sense of old school glamour to it. The food is delicious and you always feel really well looked after and it's, it's a really special place. Yes, that, those are my dining guests at the Berners Tavern. Oh, I love that. And you know, Michelle Obama, if she ever listens to the show, will find out that she is she is so many people's breakfast guest. It's <laughs> amazing how many people tell me that they'd like to have breakfast with Michelle Obama. So if you're listening, Michelle, you have many, many breakfast dates uh, lined up ahead. But Rebecca, thank you. Thank you for sharing your own story. Thank you for doing what you do, because as we said earlier, it's much needed. The world needs more and more of us talking about these types of skills, connectivity, resilience, communication, connection between each other as we all go forward. And, and, you know, not just recover from the years that will have been these years, but start to build a better future. So if you're listening today, please go and look up Rebecca Clark and Happy Marlow. I will share all of their details in the show notes. And I will look forward to welcome you all again soon to breakfast on the Empathy.
Empathy for Breakfast show. And with that, another episode of the Empathy for Breakfast show comes to a close. I would like to thank IQ Films who produced this episode and DJ Ciel for my soundtrack and music. Do join me online to carry on the conversation. I'm incredibly active on Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter at Mimi Nicklin. I would love to talk to you all more. Meanwhile, spread the word, share the empathy. Because after all, the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. I'm Mimi Nicklin. Thank you very much for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you again on the Empathy for Breakfast show.